this podcast, including any related materials, such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of their research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On this episode of The Practice, we bring you Dr. Lisa Moscone, a brilliant neuroscientist who's promoting the latest research on Alzheimer's disease and how women are disproportionately affected. When I started in the field of Alzheimer's, most people understood the disease as the consequence of bad genetic mutations or aging or a combination of the two. And it really, in 2019, it turns out that neither of these options is necessarily the case for everybody, but rather um, genetic mutations really account for less than 1% of the population. Or actually, so if we, if we stratify patients by affected families, no more than 6-7% of all the families affected by Alzheimer's have genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's disease. Based on Dr. Moscone's estimates, over 90% of Alzheimer's disease can actually be avoided by the choices we make today. She clarifies the more subtle symptoms that precede an Alzheimer's diagnosis by 15 to 20 years. Because hope lies in early detection, understanding what to watch for now is crucial. Dr. Moscone reveals what to watch for, what tests can reveal problems, biomarkers, why women are disproportionately at risk, the role that perimenopause and menopause plays in increased risk, and most importantly, what practitioners and patients can do about it. Join us on this fascinating episode of The Practice. I am so excited to be here today with Dr. Lisa Moscone, who's both a friend and a colleague, and welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm also just going to say very quickly that we are in New York. We're in a, a setting where you might hear some noise in the background. You might hear jackhammers. You might hear an alarm go off. It's just how it is in New York, so please bear with us <laughs> in terms of the I audio quality. I know it. <laughs> yeah. So I am thrilled to talk about female brains today, and I, I feel like... Maybe we should start with the elephant in the room, which is that women are more affected by a number of different conditions. So certainly Alzheimer's disease, which you're an expert at, um, twice as affected by Alzheimer's disease in terms of diagnosis. But if we start to look kind of earlier in the process mm -hmm. of neurodegeneration, I know that um, my female patients are more commonly affected by anxiety, depression, insomnia. Yeah. And we don't totally know why. So let's start okay, we there. Do and we don't. So what do we know? What do we, what do we know? What do we not know when it comes to Alzheimer's disease? And why is the female brain twice as affected? Mm. So probably the reason that I'm looking into female brains is that I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. My grandmother suffered from Alzheimer's disease and probably vascular mixed dementia. And then her two sisters also developed exactly the same condition, probably at the same age. Is this Whereas maternal grandmother? Not. Yes, my maternal grandmother. Whereas their brother did not. So four siblings, three women, one man, three women got dementia, the guy got away with that, which is a bit, it's always been a little shocking. And I was, I was in college when that happened. And ever since I've been looking into sex, female sex, speaking of chromosomal sex, but also gender-related uh, risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And of course, I'm watching my mom very yes, carefully. absolutely. And you will love her. She's, um, I'm not going to say how old she is, but she's doing yoga stands. Oh, and, I love this. Yes. Do you my test parents. her memory? 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> Casually. Formally, no formally. Well, I noticed that she has a little bit of a hard time coming up with words. So but she's word always finding. had it. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping this is just my mom, mm-hmm. not just the mm-hmm. way she is. But other than that, she, you know, she's a professor of nuclear physics. And she oh. is... <laughs> She's, she's very amazing. accomplished. She's very. Both my parents are professors in nuclear physics, and she's a researcher, and she's still doing all her research. So she's doing mm-hmm. amazing. Yes. But I am concerned on a personal level, and also I have a, a child. She's a daughter, so I have yes. a daughter. And I want to make sure that by the time my daughter is old enough to actually worry about all this, we actually have solutions. I'm glad you're answers. raising this, because I, I feel like... This is such an important point. You know, I've got two teenage daughters. And, <laughs> yeah. Talk about anxiety, stress. I can't, I can't, a 40 year old is just, can't imagine teenagers. Well, so I've got two daughters. And, and so whenever I think about, you know, the arc of Alzheimer's disease or the mm-hmm. experience of anxiety being more common in women and the experience of depression being yes. more common in women, I think about my daughters and I think about mm-hmm. having better solutions for them. I mean, um, a pill for every ill just doesn't work um, right. or hasn't worked to date doesn't when work. it comes to yes. Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So let's get to, with Alzheimer's disease, what do we know? What do we not know? And I'm especially interested in what happens to the female brain right around, you know, let's say the 35-year-old who yeah. has a baby or the, yeah. the 40-year-old who's, um, you know, celebrating a big birthday, but she's starting to have some perimenopausal symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I want to wind it back from, you know, maybe 30 years or 25 years mm-hmm. from a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Yes. What are some of those things that we know that we could actually change? When I started in the field of Alzheimer's, most people understood the disease as the consequence of bad genetic mutations or aging or a combination of the two. And it really, in 2019, it turns out that neither of these options is necessarily the case for everybody, but rather um, genetic mutations really account for less than 1% of the population. Or actually, so if we, if we stratify patients by affected families, no more than 6-7% of all the families affected by Alzheimer's have genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's disease. So, so another way of saying that is 93%, maybe 94% do not have genetic not. mutations. So that's the, the bulk way, of the patients the that we yes. need to be thinking about. Yes, for sure. And those, so 99% of the population at large does not have these mutations. So it's really important, I think, to, to rethink genetics as a little bit different from destiny. There's yes. always a genetic component that you're very involved in genetics. Everything has a genetic component, but it's not necessarily as causative or as deterministic as we previously thought, at least in Alzheimer's disease. And the other thing that, that's been a little bit of a, of a revolution in, in this field is that Alzheimer's is not a disease of old age. So we, we tend to associate Alzheimer's with old age because that's really when the symptoms become manifest or severe enough to warrant a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. But in reality, um, the process begins with negative changes in the brain at least 15, 20 years prior to a physician being able to make a diagnosis. And for most people, that means in midlife. And then what we have, so when people are like in their 50s and 60s, that would be midlife. Um, what we have shown using brain scans is that the process may actually start a little bit earlier in women, and specifically as women go through menopause. So well, this is where I roll up my sleeves because I get super <laughs> excited about this, right? Like, oh my gosh, someone's paying attention to women yes. in their 40s and perimenopause and you yes. know into their 50s. So this yes, gets me yes, super yes, excited. Yes. So you're saying Human something brain. kind of radical, which is, mm-hmm. okay, we could see changes on imaging starting in the 50s, like 10 to 15 years before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, but you're actually seeing changes that predate that. Yes, in many, in many women, the changes predate. So yeah. what's, what's the change? What do you what's see? And we actually have an image that we can We do up. have an image. It's probably easier to see with this guy. But so what we do for Alzheimer's diagnosis and Alzheimer's prevention is that we tend to run a lot of different tests 
on all the participants. And all the participants we have are clinically normal. So nobody has Alzheimer's, nobody has mild cognitive impairment. Everybody is normal on cognitive testing and clinical assessments. They do have maybe a family history of Alzheimer's or an APOE for genotypes or some kind of genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, but they are cognitively intact and young. So all the patients I've been working with are like between 25 and all the way down to 90, frankly. We have some some patients are 92, one patient is 92, but mostly for my work, um, all the way to 60, I think 60, 65 is kind of the limit. And we do a, a number of tests. We do neurological exams, medical exams, anthropometric evaluations of body mass, uh, muscle mass, um, fluid retention, water mm-hmm. content in the body. We do cognitive assessments. Uh, inflammation? Do you look for we inflammation? Measure, yes, we do uh, C-reactive protein. We look at interleukins, TNF-alpha. Like IL-6 or which interleukins? Yeah, mm-hmm. 364. Three, four, six. <laughs> uh, the whole panel, actually, I think we get okay. more than those. We usually look at them using multivariate analysis, so not just one at a time, but as a combination, because they're, inter- they're interrelated. Yes, this is music. But we have about 12. <laughs> music to my ears, I love it. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so the geeks you, come out, yes. Yeah, the geeks come and out. And then we do lab tests, including hormones, and then they come to me for brain scans. And the brain scans are MRI scans. We do seven different sequences. And I'm going to totally nerd out now because I love it. Please. So my background is in neuroscience and nuclear medicine. And it's actually much more nuclear medicine than neuroscience. So really brain scans all the time. So for MRI, we look at anatomy of the brain and whether or not there's any neuronal loss or atrophy, which mm-hmm. is usually could be an early sign of Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. But if your brain is shrinking uh, faster than expected by age. Especially in the hippocampus, or are you looking mm-hmm. more globally? We look at every part of the brain, but um, for diagnostic purposes, we focus on the medial temporal cortex. So okay. hippocampus, the memory center yes. of the brain, amygdala, yes. we keep finding it's so important in women is actually one of the first regions, at least in my hands, that is constantly affected by hormonal changes in women. The estrogen goes down, the amygdala shrinks. Hmm. And the amygdala is the emotional center of the brain, sort of. Interrenal um, cortex, parahippocampal gyrus, so all the limbic cortex, we look at that, the posterior cingular cortex that is more in charge of remembering things that happen to yourself, so autobiographical mm-hmm. memory. Mm-hmm frontal cortex, anterior cingular cortex. I mean, we look at everything. Mm-hmm. But for MRI, limbic cortex first. Is there any shrinkage in the memory centers of the brain? And then we look at inflammation in the brain using a T2 yes. sequence and T2. Yes. So there are different sequences that can highlight um, gliosis in the brain or white matter lesions, vascular damage, microbleeds, a number of things. So we can look at all that. And then we pass to the research sequences where we look at um, cerebral blood flow. Yes, yes, Oxygenation yes, yes. rates, yes. so ASL, arterial spin labeling. We do diffusion tensor imaging that looks at white matter connectivity and fiber tracking. I've heard about how important that is. It yes. is very important. And in women, it's one of the very early signs that something is not, it's not okay. So I, I just want to highlight here that... These are cutting-edge yes. technologies yeah. that are able to detect these really subtle changes that begin how far before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's? 20 years, 25. So that's extraordinary. Yes. That you've And you've discovered many of these things. So you've been tracking these things I've been tracking women. these things forever. Yes, yes, yes. I started in college. That's really my thesis all the way. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. It's a long time. Yeah. And we do mitochondrial. So mitochondrial imaging. function. Yes. yes. So, so there's a new technique with MRIs called spectroscopy mm-hmm. with 3D1 piece of phosphorus, 3D1, mm-hmm. and spectroscopy. We can measure ATP production wow. in the brain, which is so the So energy time. production Yes. In the it's the only technique that can measure mitochondrial activity and ATP production in the brain. So I'm really excited about that. That's incredible. And then, on top of that, we do two PET scans. So it's called positron emission tomography. Mm-hmm. 
And that's really nuclear medicine. That's what nuclear medicine is. We'll, we use radioactive isotopes mm-hmm. that go inside the brain and can highlight specific um, chemical reactions inside the brain. Mm-hmm. The one, the two um, reactions that we're looking for are so the way that the brain metabolizes glucose mm-hmm. to produce energy on FDG. Mm-hmm. This is a tracer. It's called mm-hmm. FDG. And we look at Alzheimer's plaques inside the brain. So glucose metabolism in Alzheimer's Alzheimer's plaques with the PET scan. Yes. So we do a lot of exams, but it it doesn't take forever. How long does it take to (laughs) scan The MRI is 55 minutes in total for seven sequences. Um, The FDG scan is 20 minutes. Okay. So 70 minutes, you're getting a ton of information about the brain. You do get a ton. Yes. It's incredible. You've published quite a bit about this. Yes, we we have. We started with maybe sixty participants mm-hmm. because nobody wanted to do the studies. You know, I applied for fundings. I got rejected all the time. Eventually, we we got funding together with um, Roberta Brinton. Yes, and we started with just like you know sixty participants, and now we have over three hundred. Wow, which is great. Yes, and what we find consistently is that just the bottom line is that when women go through menopause, their brains start aging faster than men. This is my best interpretation of what we find. And so if you take a number of people, like a group of people, hundreds or even just 60, who are 40 to 60 years old, and you split them up into men and women, men are good. It doesn't they're matter. stable they're throughout that they're period. They're, they're stable. They're pretty much stable. Their brains are very highly energized. You know, their energy levels are high. Their glucose metabolism is high. They have no Alzheimer's plaques. If their do, hormones aren't changing. Hormones are not changing. <laughs> hormones are nice and steady. Testosterone is very high, pretty high. Um, so their brains are overall good. Also over time, we're now following people for years. So we have three years worth of longitudinal data, and pretty much there's no change in men. In women, um, women who are premenopausal are just as good as men. Mm-hmm. But as they go through perimenopause, so as they start skipping periods and um, their hormones are starting to fluctuate, their brains kind of follow. And what we see, so the most shocking change is, um, is a drop in energy levels inside the brain. We see them using the FDG scans, mm-hmm. so that your glucose metabolism goes down, which is really the way your brain is activated and energized. It looks like there's like a 20% drop during perimenopause that then gets worse during the postmenopausal years by up so, to 50%. So this is huge. Yeah. So 20% drop in perimenopause, 50% in menopause, 50%. meaning that you go through your 40s, average age of menopause is 51 for a woman in the U.S., yeah. and then you're at like half the capacity in terms right. of glucose metabolism, yes. and it also sounds like energy. And that's when the, the amyloid plaques start accumulating in women. So, so it's this very vulnerable time, and I, I think a lot of women can relate to yes. <laughs> this experience of like, oh, that's why. That's why I feel this difference, you know, from how I felt when I turned 40 versus mm-hmm. how I felt when I turned 51. So I think there's kind of this aha moment as we hear about your data. Yes. I, I For me, it was really shocking and very unexpected. I I work in, I've been working in neurology forever and nobody talks about hormones. No. Nobody. It's like two separate worlds completely. So when I was like, oh, I'm looking at menopause, everybody's like, why, <laughs> why are you wasting your time doing that? It has no correlation whatsoever. And, and it really, really does. And we're now looking at more and more participants and the pattern is, is always the same. And I, I just want to underline, it doesn't happen to all women. I think there's about 20% of women that don't show any. So we need changes. to know more about those, the 20% more. who don't yes. change, who are yes. more like the men. In We're terms more of like the brains. men who remain kind of stable. And I think it correlates with clinical symptoms. So when women report hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, depression, cognitive slippage, brain fog during menopause, those don't start in your ovaries, they start inside your brain. And I think that's really what we're picking up on with the brain scans. That's what's been reflected in the energy drop inside, inside the brain. And so, um, so these are neurological symptoms. 
So this is mm-hmm. this is such an important finding, and I I just want to shout it from the rooftops. So I want to take the image and just if you could talk us through mm. the image yes. that we have. So nice. we we're gonna flash an image up on the screen for the people who are listening. We do have this also available as a video for you to be able to see the image, and you can look in the show notes too to um, get links to the papers. So just walk us through what we're looking at. So this scan to the left belongs to a woman who was premenopausal when she started the study. And then there's the same brain when she was perimenopausal. And you can see the drop is quite extreme. So the, the brain to the left is the way you want your brain to look like. So this is the this old. is the PET scan, right? PET and so scans. there's more red in the premenopause brain. Yes. And the red is good. Right. Yes, the way we read this scan is that so these are scans that show um, brain metabolic activity. And this is a good brain. So you want your brain to be really, really nice and bright because the brighter, the better. It means that this is a color-coded scale that reflects how much brain activity you have inside your brain. So red is the maximum and blue is the lowest amount, which is fine because blue is fluid. So there's fluid inside the brain. It's perfectly, perfectly normal. But what you want is that the cortex of the brain uh, you want it to be really nice and, and bright red or perhaps yellow. You want um, you want the scans to be isometabolic, so the left side should be as bright mm-hmm. as the right. So the, the right same side. on both sides. The same yeah. on both sides. And you want the front of your brain, the top of your head, to be as bright as the bottom. Good. Okay. Usually. And also these two little structures in the middle, the thalamus, also needs to be nice and bright. And usually it stays nice and bright. But that's, what, that's what's happening just a few years after. I believe it was 47 or 48 uh, perimenopause, and there's a lot more green than red. So green is less metabolic activity. Yes, in this case, it's a 30% reduction. 30% reduction in glucose metabolism? In glucose metabolism. You can see it's a little bit everywhere. So this is the temporal cortex, and it goes from red to green quite suddenly on both sides, in both hemispheres. And also this part, in the middle is the posterior cingulate cortex that is really responsible. So temporal cortex is for memory, among other things. And posterior cingulate cortex is really um, memory of places you have been, of people you have met, or just things that you have done. And that's one of the first signs of Alzheimer's is that you can't remember any of these things anymore. That's right. And also the frontal cortex is affected. So this part of the frontal cortex right in the middle is the middle frontal gyrus. And that's usually... Um, demetabolized during aging, but not, it shouldn't not be this, this low when, yes. yeah, 48. And so this part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex, and it's really in charge of thinking and reasoning and planning. And what, I don't know if you get this too a lot, but a lot of our patients say that they just can't multitask. Yes. And that's the reason they come to us a lot of women, it's because they, women are so good at multitasking usually, and all of a sudden they can't think straight. So starting and in the 40s, they can't multitask the, 40s, the way that they used to. During the transition. And then the change, you can see that the reductions are progressive also so post-menopause. So looking at perimenopause, switching to menopause now. Switching to menopause is less of a drop between perimenopause and postmenopause, but it's still evident. It's still... Uh, the metabolic rates keep going down. So I think that there's like a sudden drop when you go through perimenopause, which could be quite a few years, right? Yes, it could be two to years. eight years. It could, be, could yeah. be more. And then by the time you're postmenopausal, your brain kind of stabilizes, but that's when you get the Alzheimer's plaques. Not, all, not all women. But I think um, it, for women with a predisposition to Alzheimer's, it looks like at this stage, when the brain is at its most vulnerable, perhaps, in midlife, that's when the Alzheimer's plaques really kick in. Okay. So it's almost like a there's a seeding process or some sort of precursor before the plaques mm-hmm. begin. And it yes. could be related somehow to the cerebral hypometabolism. Yes, but also to the fact that estrogen is not just the hormone that uh, makes you fertile. It makes you have kids. It's, it's actually a hormone that has an enormous amount of wide-ranging effects in the It has brain. 300 jobs, at least. 300, yeah, <laughs> probably, probably more. It's the master regulator in the it female is. body. It's the master regulator, so it regulates brain metabolism, it regulates... So, so estrogen um, 
activates the brain through receptors. We have estrogen receptor alpha, beta, and GPAR. And both these receptors really activate transcriptional pathways. There are yes. signaling pathways and transcriptional pathways. So estrogen activates your DNA, mm -hmm. the strong effects on your DNA, and also on your mitochondria, and also on the immune system. And what many people think now is that the Alzheimer's plaques are actually the result of an, an immunological response. So it's really your immune system kicking in, trying to protect your brain. Now this is huge because mm -hmm. this is kind of radical. Yes. Right? Yes, <laughs> I mean, yes, I mean sure. like I, I've trained for 30 years with neurologists who've been sort of focused on Alzheimer's disease and what can they do and all yes. the failed drug trials. And yet to now say, I think the mechanism is immune really kind of changes our approach. So can you speak to that? Yes, so for, for many years, Alzheimer's disease was really permeated by the amyloid cascade hypothesis that states that Alzheimer's is a disease that is caused by amyloid deposition into plaques. And it's not like there is no truth to that actually, but um, there are two different forms of Alzheimer's. There is an early onset familial form that is caused by genetic mutations, so autosomal dominant genetic mutations in at least three genes that we know, um, the APP gene and the presenile 1 and 2 genes. These genetic mutations really trigger an enormous accumulation of Alzheimer's plaques. So it's basically overproduction of Alzheimer's plaques starting at a very young age which means that patients with the mutations get Alzheimer's disease dementia when they're very young, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, sometimes 50s, but really at a very young age. And for those patients, I think the amyloid cascade hypothesis works great because that's really, you know, there's really your genes that are mutated and that's, the, that's what happens inside your brain that then provokes dementia at a very young age. So, but this is a small percentage overall yes, of the Alzheimer's. Yes, that's the 1%. Yes. So 1% so of the population okay. um, carries these genetic mutations and above 6-7% of people in affected families. So it's really, um, it's not nearly as prevalent as we previously thought. For the rest of the population, Alzheimer's um, is usually not genetically determined. As far as we know, there are no autosomal dominant genetic mutations that cause the late onset form of Alzheimer's, which could be in the 60s, 65, 70s, 80s. In that case, there is amyloid, there are amyloid plaques inside patients' brains. It's the presence of amyloid plaques is actually necessary to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. However, we don't really know why patients have these plaques. And uh, it may be some genetic risk factor, it could be a genetic uh, vulnerability, but it may actually be, and this is the, the most recent theory that Sarah mentioned, the revolutionary theory, um, and very controversial, I would add, is that amyloid is actually um, an immune reaction. So it's your brain trying to protect you from other things. And amyloid then works a little bit as a, as a prison right, a little trap that goes against different pathogens and just trap them up. And then your microglia, um, which is like the police mm -hmm. inside your hand, goes against it, um, phagocytates it, so digests it, and then just poops it out in your CSF. And that's one, one possibility that um, amyloid plaques really pop inside your brain as a response, as a protective response to something else. Gotcha. Controversial. <laughs> so controversial, but that's that's kind of the direction we're heading. So we'll see if we have the evidence base to completely support that in terms yes. of the mechanism. But it explains some of the gaps that we've had yes. in, in trying to understand yes. Alzheimer's and, and to be able to explain, yes. you know, why more people get it. When you were showing us the PET scan before, you said that, okay, this is the evidence of the cerebral hypometabolism yes. that reduces by 20, in that patient's case, 30% in perimenopause, and then up to 50% or so postmenopause. But you also said that atrophy is not occurring, that that's a later process. Yes. So can you speak to that? Because I, I think that's, um, that's interesting. It tells me that atrophy is a much later 
phenomenon, mm-hmm. maybe even harder to reverse, and that we're oh, looking sure. at. We're and looking I don't at think it's reversible. Once you lose neurons, they're they're gone. Yeah. Whereas the metabolic uh, changes. There's maybe an opportunity yes, there. I think there is an opportunity as long as you understand why this is happening. So there seems to be a staging of um, biomarker progression in Alzheimer's. According to some people, Alzheimer's um, amyloid plaques come first and they trigger reductions in brain metabolic activity which in turn lead eventually to neuronal loss or atrophy. According to other people, the energetic reduction may come first. Perhaps inflammation comes first, which is all kind of the same. Um, you know, they're kind of related to each other. That triggers amyloidosis, the Alzheimer's plaques, and then atrophy follows. I think what everybody agrees upon is that uh, neuronal loss is pretty much end stage. Yes. It's not a very early... It could be the point Phenomenon of no return. Is more, yeah, well, yes. I mean, once you can't regrow neurons, just very, just very few in just very specific parts of your brain. But by and large, um, neurons and brain cells in general are irreplaceable. So once you lose them, you lose them. But the, the point is, even if you have lost some, for people who, who have some brain shrinkage, what you want to do is to really maximize the strength of the neurons you got left. Yes. Like right. fortify your bases. For, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so I want to shift into some solutions. Because yes. you, you're someone I love to talk about. Um, brain food. I love brain to talk food. about. I mean, you're you're Italian. <laughs> You've been immersed in the Mediterranean diet, yes, which grew is up in France. You grew up in France. <laughs> so you you know a lot about the power of food and you know both the research and also the personal experience with it. Yes. So focusing on this issue of cerebral hypometabolism mm-hmm. that we see in the in the the setting of a decline in estrogen activity, what do we do about it? Like, what's, what's proven? What do we know? What are still kind of the more emerging factors that we don't quite have clear answers about? Yes, I think, um, so this is, this is quite a thing for me to actually talk about lifestyle and prevention of Alzheimer's. It was kind of taboo in my field for a really long time, and it was very easy to be labeled as a quack. It's ta- it's taboo <laughs> across the board in academic yes. medicine to talk about That's prevention true. and lifestyle medicine. That's true. But... I think now more and more investigators are actually very comfortable with the idea that the choices you make in your life have a huge effect on the health of your brain, especially prior to any Alzheimer's-related changes. So really when when the potential for preserving your brain is greatest, that's really when we need to focus on, on lifestyle and medical care as well, right? So reduction of any risk factors that can affect your heart because the health of your heart is really important for the health of your brain. So Actually, meaning, meaning like heart. your blood pressure. So getting making sure yeah. your blood pressure is in a, a normal place, that the, that the level of inflammation in right. your body is, mm-hmm. um, you know, we need some inflammation. We need acute inflammation to deal with yes. problems, but mm-hmm. we don't want to get stuck in that chronic inflammatory mm-hmm. situation. Yes. So yes, those are incredibly important. I'm glad you always come back to that because I always forget to talk about the basics. <laughs> and it's really important when it comes to your brain, right? Like that's part it of is, it's cerebral really, blood flow and cerebral yes. metabolism. It's, mm-hmm. an, it's an important part. It's huge. No, it's huge. And I think for for so long, at least when I was in school, the brain was always um, was always depicted as, as something completely unrelated to the rest of you. Your brain is in charge of everything, but nothing has an effect on your brain. And now we really understand that that was completely wrong at that there are continuous feedback loops yeah. between your There's brain and the There's this bi-directional conversation that happens yes. all the time. So even if you hurt a foot, your brain will somehow suffer with your foot. Yes. And that's very new in neurology, I think, and in psychiatry. Maybe less in psychiatry, more in neurology. <laughs> but what we know now is that the health of your gut has a huge effect on the health of your brain. Same for your heart, same for your lungs, same for your ovaries. Yes. And these are all connections that are just starting to really emerge. So what, what should we do to keep our brains healthy? There are, there are several risk factors that uh, we can intervene upon and modify and some completely reverse. And these are, of course, um, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, and um, for things that we actually can really, really eliminate, diet 
exercise, intellectual activity, smoking, smoking, no cigarettes. Cigarettes have to go, especially for women, because they really affect your ovaries in, in a huge, huge way. Tobacco is, is a neurotoxin as well. And for women, hormonal health. Speaking of diet, I think there's, there's consensus at this point that food has a huge effect on the health of your brain and that food is not um, a silver bullet, it's not a miracle, but um, it's something that helps your brain and your neurons remain healthy over the course of a lifetime. So if you eat healthily for two weeks, that won't have any effect whatsoever on your brain. It really takes a continuous feedback between the nutrients that we put inside our body that, that can actually get inside your brain and uh, brain function. So it's really a lifestyle adjustment. That needs well, this, to, and this is so important because I, you know, as we have more scientific discovery with the gut-brain axis, right. we know that the number one most important factor when it comes to your microbiome is... The food that you eat. Food, yeah. It's such an important piece to emphasize. You know, I, I got 30 minutes of nutrition training when I went through medical school. I've had to learn everything I know about nutrition after medical school and after residency. And so most of the clinicians who are listening to us or watching us mm-hmm. um, haven't had some of that training about, yeah. you know, what do they recommend to their patients? So can you give yeah. us like a basic overview of what, what are some of those foods that are good for the brain. Yeah, specifically for women or for... Yeah, let's focus they're different. on women. They're different. This is oh, something good. I didn't realize. Yeah, what's realize. the difference? Yes. So there are many studies that look at men and women combined. And when you do that, the nutrients that really stand out uh, for Alzheimer's prevention and for co- healthy cognitive aging are B vitamins, especially folate, B6 and B12. And this is for both men and women? For both, yes, both men and women. And then omega-3 fatty acids. And, um, how much omega-3s? How much? Oh, that's a good question. It depends. So if you look at the FDA, they will tell you about 1.3, 1.4 grams a day and less for women. But if you look at the research, at least four. Four grams, four per, grams day. per day. So there are studies that looked at uh, brain scans of people who would fall over time also. And they really try to correlate their omega-3 intake and the health of their brains over time. And they showed quite clearly, actually, that people who consume at least four grams of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids per day have a 70% lower risk of Alzheimer's. Those sweet. What? Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) This is so important. Okay, so four grams a day of omega-3s, 70% reduction, risk reduction in this... It sounds like there's some epidemiologic data that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. Is there a point at which it's too late? Like I imagine once you have atrophy, maybe that's too late. But Or maybe the four grams a day could help you preserve what you have left. I don't know. I don't think we know. But these studies are actually in people who, who went all the way from middle age to like in their 70s okay. or older. So it looks like... Uh, it's quite consistent. So it's a not, strong effect. It looks effect. like it's not dependent by age, okay. as far as I remember. Okay, from. I'm going to take my fish oil today. Okay, <laughs> so four grams a day. Four and grams it's, and not it's, that much, It's actually. not that much, but yeah. look at the difference compared to the RDA, because I think yes. that's an important thing to yes. emphasize. I agree, um, especially for women. I'm trying to remember if it's 1.1 to 1.2 grams per day. But it's some small amount, you it's know, like a third or it's a nothing. quarter of what they yes. should be getting. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, so omega-3 fatty acids are really important um, as well, and antioxidants as well. But then when you, when you really stratify by gender, there are more differences that come up. Like women need more nutrients. Yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat to, now. So, so they need more nutrients. What, what does that mean? They need more they vegetables? Need, they need they more need rainbow more colors? Attention. So all the correlations between uh, the parameters we, we measure inside the brain and nutritional intake they're all stronger, much stronger in women than men, mm-hmm. which suggests that brain function is more dependent on food in women than in men, on nutritional quality in women than men. So women need more, something that comes up a lot is um, antioxidants mm-hmm. for women, very specific ones like um, beta-carotene sure, and vitamin E and vitamin C. And also, uh, well, omega-3 fatty acids for sure. And I was going to say another one, and I forgot. Oh, fiber. 
fiber. Oh, fiber. Yeah. So, is, uh, so nobody looks at fiber. So fiber is so mm-hmm. interesting to me because, um, you know, when I think about the astrobolome, the subset of the microbiome that's involved in metabolizing estrogens, and I think about, you know, that female brain and mm-hmm. how it's changing from mm-hmm. premenopause to menopause, and I'm thinking about estrogen as a regulatory um, hormone. I think the microbiome and the way that you take care of it could mm-hmm. potentially alter your estrogen levels. Oh, for, yeah. So this makes a lot of sense that yes, there's a the gen, there's a sex difference. Yes, I, I agree. I think I think everything is interrelated, and in women, um, estrogen is really involved in every other aspect of physiology. Mm-hmm. Yes. In the body, so it really supports heart health. Is involved in your digestive system. Is involved in everything, and and it's a connection that we usually don't really discuss right i mean who do you go to what kind of doctor is able to give you that information or even listen well i hope going forward we have more of them that's that's part of the mission that i'm on with you (laughs) so do that (laughs) so in terms of anything else um that we can be doing for the brain especially for folks who are listening to us who take care of women who are Mm. premenopausal perimenopausal menopausal what else can they be telling their patients? Like, I, I think that takeaway of the four grams per day of the omega-3s is so important, the antioxidants, as you mentioned. What about with exercise? Any other lifestyle factors? Sleep? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, sleep is a huge problem for for everybody, really, but especially women. Like, it's, it's, just, it's a statistical reality that women have more trouble sleeping than men. And that increases stress. I was thinking stress is yes. a big issue for, for women. So we know the sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, um, they are all uh, related to stress levels because they all come from the same root. Yes, pregnenolone. Pregnenolone. And, and yes. So what happens when you're very stressed out is that this pregnenolone is steel. Yes, so you make cortisol, cortisol, cortisol. Forget the other sex forget hormones. Forget about the sex hormones. So they're kind of imbalanced. If, you, if your cortisol is high, there's a very good chance the production of your sex hormones may be reduced. Which can be affecting possibly the Everything. cerebral metabolism. In oh, the yes. Well, for sure. Your, your immune system, as soon as your estrogen is low, your immune system also has some kind of derailment including inside your brain. And there's um, there's a really good paper that just came out a couple of months ago showing how high cortisol levels are associated with um, reduced memory performance and increased brain shrinkage. Yes. But if you look at the brain shrinkage, it's really only in women. And only in women. Women are more vulnerable. Menopausal age. This is so interesting. Yes. Okay, so I want to link to that article, if you could send it to me. Yes. Um, and I want to read it, and mm-hmm. then I want to put it in the show notes. I'm super curious about the 20% yes. of the female brains that you're looking at who don't have this increased yeah. cerebral hypometabolism um, as they go through the perimenopausal and menopausal process. Do you know anything about those 20%? Like, do they have a difference in terms of their blood sugar? Is their hemoglobin A1C lower? Is there anything, you know, when I hear cerebral glucose metabolism, it also makes me think about insulin resistance and the mm. insulin signaling pathway. Is there any sort of explanation or do we know anything about that 20%? Mm, no, we we, pers- we haven't looked, but I don't think it's known. I really don't think, I don't think it's known. It's just, I think it's a um, genetic variation in the population. There are some women that just don't get hot flashes, right? So the women t- who don't experience depression or... So this 20% who's just very resilient very and kind resilient. of able to yes. navigate the changes in estrogen. So I think, you know, the next question is, um, which I'm sure is on the tip of everyone's tongue, which is, okay, if you have all these problems that happen mm-hmm. um, through the perimenopausal transition and it's related to possibly estrogen declining, can you then take estrogen and, and sort of can you get your estrogens to a certain point, not too high, not too low, so that you're able to stabilize and look more like the 20% or look like the yeah. men? Yes, yes, yes. So I don't think we have the answer to that yet, but no. what do you think? I think we need tools to look into that. So we have clinical trials that broadly just created an enormous amount of confusion. Yes, totally. Yes. <laughs> Let's so, speak to the confusion. Let's speak to the confusion. And, and then re- I, I really want to talk about a possible... Um, solution. Um, so these clinical trials 
What happened historically is that in the 50s, every woman at menopause would go on estrogen. Yeah. They would just be... Premarin was the number one prescription for decades. Yes. Yeah, so every woman at menopausal age uh, would just go on estrogen and pretty much stay on estrogen for life. And that was medical practice. And that was, strangely enough, that was before... Premarin and Prempro were actually tested in formal clinical trials. There were no randomized trials. It was like a 50-year uncontrolled medical experiment being done on women. Yes. I feel strongly about that. You may have noticed. Yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as you should. It's it's really strange. Like, I knew nothing about that until I started looking into menopause. And I, I mean, I'm used to confusion. In research and science, but that is that is really it's a failure. It's a total failure. It's incredible that yeah. it, it even happened. So then, the government, the NIH, um, launched these two huge clinical trials of the Women's Health Initiative, and one trial was for women who had their uterus removed mm-hmm. and they were taking estrogen-only therapy. And then the other trial was for women with a uterus. And if you have a uterus, you need to take estrogen and progesterone because otherwise your risk of cancer cancer. is higher. Um, And then the trials just completely failed, showing that both therapies increased the risk of uh, cardiovascular events in in women on both regimes. Um, And also stroke and blood clots and um, the estrogen plus progestin therapy also increased the risk of cancer, breast cancer. Yes. In women. And so the trials were shut down and so many women just stopped taking HRT overnight. Right. The pendulum swung in the other direction. Yes. And they just completely gave up on HRT. And not just women, doctors as well stopped Mm -hmm. prescribing it. Mm -hmm. And pharmaceutical companies stopped, kind of stopped testing it. I said, that's it. Now, but recently, many scientists have really gone back to the data because um, the Women's Health Initiative didn't completely end. So women stopped taking the hormones, the trials kind of, you know, they were like, okay, you you do whatever you want. But they keep collecting data Mm -hmm. on those women. And we're talking about 100,000 women or more. It's a big group. It's huge. And now scientists are going back in thinking, well, those women were fairly old. Right. Mm-hmm. There were many years post-menopause mm-hmm. when they started taking estrogens, but there were also women who were younger, not this many, but there were quite, a, you know, thousands, really, of women who were 50 to 59 yes. when the study began, which is still post-menopause, mm-hmm. but not as It's a window. Fast. It's a window that's a little it's closer a to menopause. It's closer to menopause. And when you look at younger women then there seems to be actually a benefit mm-hmm. of HRT, mm-hmm. which needs to be tested in clinical, in formal clinical trials, not re-examinations of clinical trials that failed. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a big difference. Mm-hmm. But what also um, transpires is that if you give estrogen replacement therapy to women who are older than 65, that really doubles your risk of dementia. Yes. There was the Women's Health Initiative. But there's some evidence that if you start estrogen therapy closer to the onset of menopause. And I personally, with that prior to perhaps, mm-hmm. it seems to actually have a protective effect with a 30% lower risk of Alzheimer's down the line. And that's actually even more um, promising in women who had a hysterectomy or an OVX, so who had their ovaries removed. It really So women who have their ovaries taken out either as part of a hysterectomy or just the ovaries, um, they seem to have a much higher risk of Alzheimer's disease later in life as compared to women who keep their ovaries. Perhaps related to the dramatic reduction in estrogen. So even with a hysterectomy, if you leave the ovaries behind, you have changes in blood flow to the ovaries. And so the estrogen levels, we know, decline even in those patients. And even for those women, there's an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease later in life. But the studies have shown that um, women who had a hysterectomy or ophorectomy and took estrogen replacement therapy from the moment they had the surgery until the natural age of menopause, they had a much lower risk of Alzheimer's. It was actually back to normal limits. So we're getting there. There's, there's something that needs to be explored. And so many uh, scientists are really looking into different formulations, more specific dosages of estrogen, the window of, of opportunity. When should I give you the estrogens? And as, as a scientist, my question was, well, how do you know now 
how do you how do you know when to start and how do you know how much estrogens to give to each woman differently because every woman is different if you don't look at estrogen inside people's brains yes right and that seems like a very obvious question and then i asked that the answer is you can't do it hmm. we don't have any tools that allow us to measure estrogen levels inside the brain we can measure it in blood, but there's no correlation with your brain. Is there a correlation between cerebral hypometabolism and serum estradiol levels? Not strong. No, because it's so Shoot. hard to... <laughs> that would be so much easier. <laughs> Absolutely. There, you know, your estrogen levels in plasma or serum just fluctuate so widely. It mm. really depends if it's in the morning, if it's in the evening, mm -hmm. if it's like a week after your cycle, if it's three days... Before you say, it just... Well, I wonder if we, if we looked at, like, in perimenopause, we only look at day three. I know this is hard to do. It's, with the, it's the hardly, yeah, it's pretty cycle. much impossible. It is pretty Especially much Especially in perimenopause. How do you know? Yeah, we're trying. We're collecting all the data. We do all the brain scans. We measure hormones at different times of the month around the skin. Yeah. So to try and, and get a correlation. But it's, it's just never... I personally would much rather look at estrogen inside women's brains. Mm -hmm. And since we have we had no method to do it, we're not working on one. Okay. Yes. Good. So the next time I interview you, we can maybe <laughs> talk about that. Okay. So I just want to recap this piece that I think is so important that we we know at least from the Women's Health Initiative with all the limitations that we have with those data that there's this window of opportunity um, Within 10 years of menopause, five for Alzheimer's. Within five years of menopause, where yes. estrogen therapy seems to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's in the future by about 30%, correct? Between 30 and 44. Between 30 and 44. I love that precision. <laughs> and then also we know with surgical menopause, or if yes. you if you have your ovaries removed or a hysterectomy, yes. if you start hormone therapy. Um, estrogen therapy at that point, the day of surgery or day after, that that also protects the brain. It seems to protect. By some level, some the, reduction. Yes. So what I want to clarify is that these are observational studies. Yes. So they're not randomized trials. No. I don't know if we'll ever have randomized trials to be able to answer that question. Maybe, yeah. Oh. So there are two trials. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> there are two trials that try to do that. The elite yes. trial and yes. the KEEPS yes. trials. But it didn't work out. Right, so they, they looked at women who were um, up to six years post-menopause and women who were over six years post-menopause and treated them with estrogen only or um, estrogen and progestin therapy, and they reported no cognitive improvements. And was the sample size large enough? Was yes. the power enough? Okay. Like 600 right. or can't, can't explain however, it that way. However, all these women were past menopause. Again, so your right? point so is, is, is maybe we need to start like, sooner before maybe. the cerebral hypometabolism begins. Yes, and also we should do brain scans because if you don't need support, then why would I give it to you? Right? If you don't need the estrogens and you don't have hot flashes, yes. why would I give you something that is potentially useless and also confounds my ability to d detect an improvement? Right? If you don't have a deficit, how, how am I supposed to measure improvement? But I want to I keep this fantasticness. Can I measure, like, stability <laughs> of my neurons? Yes, but then you'll find nothing, right? Then is when you find no no change. But I want, I want no trial. change. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with you. But the problem is that no change means a negative clinical trial, and that's how it's been presented. I found no improvement, so we failed. Estrogen therapy doesn't work. And maybe that's what we want instead. Maybe, maybe we want stability. We want. Or maybe we, we want. want to start sooner, or maybe we want to really... Um, tighter the dose up to your own estrogen needs Yes, that we need to measure. So I love your cogent <laughs> synthesis, your thoroughness when you talk <laughs> about the literature. I could talk to you all day. I know we have limited time. So as we start to wrap up, what's next for you? Like what are some of those um, challenges that you're taking uh, on? Oh, we have many. So I just launched the Women's Brain Initiative. Yes. Yay, Yay, I'm Cornell. so excited. Yay. Amazing. Well, Cornell, so we're in New York City on the Upper East Side, and we just launched this initiative, which is funded by the NIH, by the Cure Alzheimer's Fund, and by Maria Shriver's Women's Alzheimer's Amazing. Movement. Amazing. Amazing. Wonderful. And also by funding from the Department of Neurology and Radiology, which I'm now 
uh, faculty member. Congratulations. But thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy. So we're, we're actively recruiting participants for the studies. We're going to try and answer as many questions as we, we possibly can of everything we just discussed. Uh, we're doing brain scans and no cost to participants. Everything is sponsored by uh, the government and by funding agencies. And what, we, what we're trying to do is to really bring other investigators together and really work as a team with other scientists who are also looking into this. There are so many, which is wonderful. And um, there's so much that we need to understand. Like Alzheimer's prevalence is higher in women than in men, but there's a lot of confusion on whether risk is higher or not, mm. which may seem like if, if there are more Alzheimer's women than men, risk is higher, right, in, in just common language. But statistically, that is not necessarily the case. So it's the rate. So meaning meaning that women tend to live longer, that's, it may so that's just part of the, the issue. The women live longer, and we and others are trying to make the case that women really live maybe three years, four years longer than men, in England just two years. And that can't be the only explanation. Mm -hmm. There's definitely more. What we and others have shown is that um, the, the, the risk factors that really trigger Alzheimer's disease in people differ by sex. There are like the stress, factors, the point like stress, stress, right? Stress affects both men and women, but it seems to affect women's brains more. Same for diet. If you have a diet that is really high in processed food, a lot of meat, a lot of dairy, a lot of fried foods, like the typical Western diet, mm -hmm. seems to affect uh, women's brains more than men, especially around you know midlife, middle mm -hmm. age. So menopausal age, exercise the same. So women tend to exercise less than men. But when they do exercise, their brains seem to really uh, get more of a benefit from exercise than men's brains. Oh, so it promotes so neurogenesis. Is there more of a neurogenesis effect in I think in it women? really boosts your hormones ah. as well, more than... I'm not a huge fan of neurogenesis. I think it's... We, we, I don't see it. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why I've never seen. Well, you're a looking, brain, so I pay attention reform. to what you say because <laughs> you're actually looking inside a brain. <laughs> I don't know if if it, if it regrows neurons, maybe a little bit that we just can't capture, but it definitely raises your metabolic activity. Yes, okay, so that is well is well established. I okay. think sleep also um, seems to affect both men and women, but women have a harder time sleeping. So we really need to look into what happens in women when they don't sleep. Yes. Do you get Alzheimer's? Do you have an even reduced, uh, an even more reduced clearance of Alzheimer's plaques out of, out of your brain? Because sleep is when your brain is able to flush out all the toxins and waste products and Alzheimer's plaques. Like the lymphatic system. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank so, you so much for this deep dive. I just felt like it was so exciting to go through the data and to really hear the details and get into the weeds a bit with you. Thank you for your time. Thank, thank you for yours. your crucially important um, contributions to the field. I just want to um, be the wind at your back. Uh, you're a warrior who's like <laughs> doing incredibly important work when it comes to prevention of Alzheimer's and just understanding what's happening. So thank you, Lisa thank Moscone. You. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being with us for this episode of The Practice. You'll find extensive show notes, including links and supportive materials over at thepracticepodcast.tv. While you're there, explore other topics and use the Ask and Answer button to ask your burning questions and give your insights about the topic. After all, the future of medicine lies in dialogue, not dogma. Let's transform medicine together by connecting on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find all the links at thepracticepodcast.tv. This podcast, including any related materials such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. This podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship and should not be considered a substitute for the independent professional judgment of any physician or healthcare professional regarding the appropriate course of action for a particular patient or individual. Metagenics does not make any guarantees regarding the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this podcast for any particular purpose.
Listeners may use this podcast at their own risk and patients should not disregard or delay seeking advice from their healthcare providers based on the content of this podcast. Participation through the Ask and Answer button is optional, and no participant should feel obligated to provide personal details, including about any diagnosis, symptoms, or other health-related information. Neither Metagenics Institute nor any of its affiliates seek this information, and it is not necessary to participate in the dialogue regarding this podcast. The podcast presenter's views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of its research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Listening to this podcast does not obligate you to purchase, use, recommend, or prescribe any Metagenics or Metagenics Institute products or services, including their educational materials. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unless approved by Metagenics Institute, this podcast must be used only for personal, non-commercial purposes. This podcast has no independent economic value and is intended to comply with all applicable laws. It may be rescinded, revoked, or amended at any time without notice. Listeners who are patients should talk to their healthcare providers if they have any questions regarding the content discussed in this podcast. Listeners who are healthcare professionals may obtain more information by visiting metagenicsinstitute.com, calling 888 690-8500 or emailing med ed at metagenicsinstitute.com.